If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Roberto Calvi, a wealthy Italian financier with influential connections so deep within the Vatican that he was dubbed God's banker. And yet... So complex is the mystery surrounding his life that even today it is still uncertain whether his death was a suicide or a murder. Murder Mile is researched using original sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 70, Roberto Calvi, The Death of God's Banker. Today, I'm standing under Blackfriars Bridge, WC2, a wrought iron structure constructed in 1869 which stretches 105 feet wide and 923 feet long, and is one of nine bridges over the tidal stretch of the River Thames, between the Tower of London and the Houses of Parliament. Situated two miles east of Soho, half a mile south of the Old Bailey, 
and just a hop from the Oxo Tower and the Tate Modern, Blackfriars was named after the Dominican monastery which stood near the site between 1276 and 1538. And with black being a reference to the habits worn by the monks, and friar deriving from the French word frere, meaning brothers. Hence this became Blackfriars Bridge. Following the building's destruction during the dissolution of the monasteries, just so that bloated, pasty and undercooked chicken McNugget lookalike Henry VIII could play a barbarically realistic version of Shag Mary Kill, Blackfriars is no longer a place of religious significance. Instead, 100 feet east is Blackfriars Station, where every day long lines of soulless, dead-eyed commuters trudge from desk to door, having injected six shots of neat caffeine into each eye to stop their chins scraping along the floor, as they all mutter in unison, I hate my job, I hate my job, I hate my job, and repeatedly stab a small cocked voodoo doll of their boss, made from a realistic mix of lads mags, old CVs and dog shit. And although flanks of desk-bound drones escape their sad little lunches with the other losers by jogging, secretly hoping that if they twist an ankle, break a leg or hack up a noxious lung, they'll be granted sick leave. As they run along the north side of the Thames and under the steel beams of Blackfriars Bridge, they pass the site where the stress of a fellow office worker's job drove him to death. As it was here, on Saturday the 18th of June 1982, that the body of a mysterious banker called Roberto Calvi was found hanging. But was this a suicide or a murder? Giacomo and Maria Calvi were two strict Italian Catholics raised in Tremonico, a small village near the Swiss border. Born to rugged mountain folk who worked hard, lived simply and spent frugally, although the family's modest home overlooked the affluence of Lake Como, as a fiscally astute man, Giacomo became a successful manager at Banco Commerciale Italiana, and yet the couple renounced wealth prestige and privilege, choosing to live a life which was simple, drab and austere. Having uprooted for work, Giacomo and Maria relocated 60 miles south to Milan, Italy's second city. It truly was a culture shock for the conservative couple, moving from farmland to a financial capital, from livestock to the stock exchange, and from a commune of 70 people to a sprawling metropolis of seven million strangers. Milan was a city of excess, immorality and opulence. On the 13th of April 1920, it was here that their oldest son Roberto was born, surrounded by everything the wide-eyed boy ever wanted in life, money, power and fame. Described as an arrogant loner who was obsessively secretive, Roberto was a bright but quarrelsome student who often fought and spent time finding ever more imaginative ways to make money, to buy the finer things in life that his tight-fisted parents had shunned. Good food, fine art and fancy clothes. And yet, style never suited him, as being small and portly, even tailored suits hung off him like a sack of spuds 
and burdened by a bald head with dark tufts over his ears. His hair consisted of an unfashionable toothbrush moustache fixed under the middle of his wrinkled, stern and grumpy face. For those formative years, he dreamed of wealth, but simply being rich would never be enough. Roberto's life was uncertain, as having dropped out of a law degree and enlisted at Turin Military Academy, being unable to join the Air Force owing to his chronic vertigo. In 1971, 2nd Lieutenant Calvi was sent to the Russian front. A brutal experience where the ravages of poverty and hunger was etched into his brain forever. With the war over, in 1975, Roberto became a bank clerk at Banca Commerciale Italiana, a stuffy provincial savings bank. He hated the work, the people and the rules. But seeing banking as his quickest route to wealth, having later been given a three-month trial at Banco Ambrosiano, the bank became his life. Established in 1896, Banco Ambrosiano was a small savings bank built to provide financial services for Roman Catholic institutions. So central to its ethos was the church that any prospective employees had to submit a baptismal certificate of trust to prove that they were a good Catholic. But 50 years on, steeped in creaky old traditions, very little had changed. But Roberto saw promise. Roberto rose quickly through the ranks, from clerk to manager to personal assistant to the CEO and to general manager in 1971. And by 1975, he'd been promoted to chairman of Banco Ambrosiano. Although he was an arrogant, secretive and deeply obsessive loner, seen as a great innovator who would shake up its stifling rules and modernize the bank, under his leadership, Banco Ambrosiano would become Italy's second-largest bank. And seeing this as his own empire, he was eager to expand. By the late 1970s, Roberto was rich, powerful and successful. The feisty little boy, whose austere parents had dressed him in drab clothes, fed him bland food and denied him even the simplest of luxuries, had everything he ever wanted. But for Roberto, being rich would never be enough. His downfall began when Banco Ambrosiano backed its biggest ever client. In 1972, Michele Sindona, financier of the Franklin National Bank, introduced Roberto Calvi to Archbishop Paul Marchinkas. Born in Chicago to Catholic parents, as a tall, fearsome priest who was nicknamed the Gorilla, Marchinkas began his career as the Pope's bodyguard. Eager to modernize the Vatican, when Marchinkas was promoted to head of the Institute of Religious Works, the Vatican's own internal bank, he streamlined the systems, computerized their accounting, and having famously said, you can't run the church on Hail Mary's, he sought to expand its revenue. 
The Catholic Church is one of the most powerful religious organizations with an annual spend of $170 billion and as the world's largest private landowner with 71.6 million hectares of land as well as an undocumented wealth of artworks, buildings and treasures. To ensure its financial stability, Marchinkus sought expert help. With Catholic morals at its core, Banco Ambrosiano was the perfect choice for the Vatican, and seeing similarities between himself and its chairman, the deal was done. Roberto became God's banker, and with such a prestigious client, he began to amass many powerful friends, from the church, the government, the press, and the mafia, all the way into secret societies like Propaganda Due. Established at the end of World War II, Propaganda Due, known as P2, began as a branch of the Freemasons, whose traditions lie in medieval stonemasonry. Hence, much of its symbolism revolves around stonemasons' tools. Splintering from the Freemasons in 1976, under the command of its fascist grandmaster, Licio Gelli, P2 spawned into a highly secretive organization comprising of only the top tier of Italian's most powerful men, including politicians, judges, businessmen, bankers and journalists, to establish an ultra-right-wing group who controlled all aspects of the Italian government, often described as a state within a state. By the late 1970s, under Roberto's guidance and Marcinkus's management, the Vatican had become the largest shareholder in Banco Ambrosiano, and although the alliance continued to make it millions, Roberto used his bank and the Vatican's money to secure the finances for P2's fascist agenda, and whether he knew this or not, to launder the Mafia's ill-gotten gains. Roberto was about to make himself, the bank, and its primary shareholder, the Vatican, very rich. And although it was incredibly dangerous, to risk the fortunes of the church, the mafia, and P2 on such an inventive and unorthodox scheme. It was also highly illegal. To bypass Italian tax laws, through Banco Ambrosiano, Roberto would export money overseas using a series of shell corporations, fake banks, front companies, and mailboxes, all from the respectability of his bank in Milan by loaning large sums of money to accounts in Luxembourg, Switzerland, Nicaragua, Buenos Aires, Peru and the Bahamas. As all transfers leave a paper trail, to prove to the financial authorities that each loan was legitimate, Roberto needed a letter of reference from the primary lending bank in the Bahamas, stating that they were all creditworthy. This wasn't a problem, as although each bank was fictional, the director of the bank in the Bahamas had been appointed by Roberto himself. It was his old friend and the Vatican's head of the Institute of Religious Works, Archbishop Paul Marchinkus. In total, Roberto transferred $1.4 billion overseas between several companies which existed only on paper, making himself and the Vatican vast sums of money in the process. And then, it all collapsed. In 1974, 
Michaela Sindona of the Franklin National Bank was arrested and imprisoned for fraud. His bank collapsed, and owing to bad loans and fraudulent currency transactions, the Vatican lost almost $30 million. Just like Roberto Calvi, Michele Sindona was a banker with deep connections to the Mafia, P2 and the Vatican. With his reputation and assets ruined, Sindona's greatest fear wasn't the lengthy prison sentence that he faced, but the powerful people his trial may expose. So even behind bars, his life was at stake. On the 11th of July 1979, Giorgio Ambrosoli, a court-appointed liquidator investigating Sindona's fraud, found evidence of criminal manipulation, linking an American bishop to a Milanese banker. One hour after he had reported these findings to the Palermo chief police, three mafia hitmen shot Giorgio Ambrosoli dead. Ten days later, the police chief was dead too. The mafia hit had been ordered by Michele Sindona, and the names that the lawyer had given were Roberto Calvi and Archbishop Marcinkus. Michele Sindona was sentenced to life in prison for murder, but fearing those that his failure would unveil, on the 18th of March 1986, Sindona drank a cup of coffee laced with highly poisonous potassium cyanide. He died instantly, and even today, it is uncertain if his death was a suicide or a murder. Sindona was the first piece to fall, but many would follow, and more deaths were to come. On the 17th of March 1981, in the villa of Grandmaster Licio Gelli, prosecutors investigating connections between Michele Sindona and P2 found a list of the secret society's 962 members, which included bankers, generals, judges, and the future Italian Prime Minister, Silvio Berlusconi. And with their members unmasked, P2 was dissolved. A few weeks later, with the authorities having identified $27 million worth of Italian lira, which had been illegally exported overseas by purchasing shares in foreign banks, Banco Ambrosiano's chairman, Roberto Calvi, was arrested. He was given a four-year suspended sentence, a fine of $20 million, and was placed on bail, appending his appeal. All the while, Archbishop Marcinkus was kept away from the Italian investigators. As with the Vatican being a sovereign state, he was outside of their legal jurisdiction. With his passport confiscated and his accounts frozen, Roberto Calvi was a sitting duck. Fearing for his wife and children's safety, having spent close to a million dollars on alarms, cameras and barriers, a bulletproof car, private jet hire and ten armed security guards. With his impending trial about to expose the Mafia, P2 and the Vatican's involvement in fraud, he had his family flown out of the country. Having illegally transferred $1.4 billion of Banco Ambrosiano's stocks overseas, money which belonged to its powerful and deadly investors, Roberto had no way to plug this deficit 
without the investigators spotting the fraud. And with the money missing, the bank, along with its clients' funds, would collapse. On Monday the 5th of June 1982, Roberto sent a private letter to Pope John Paul II, warning him of the bank's collapse, of Archbishop Marchinkus's involvement, and the impact this would have on the church. Five days later, on Friday the 10th of June 1982, Roberto Calvi disappeared. Aided by his underworld contacts, Roberto was smuggled out of Italy in a speedboat driven by renowned smuggler and now his bodyguard, Silviano Vittor. In the back seat of an inconspicuous little car, Roberto was driven to Klagenfurt in Austria, where he stayed for two nights, hid in shady hotels, and made calls on payphones to his wife Clara, his daughter Anna, as well as trying to secure a $1.2 billion deal with Italian financier Francesco Pazienza. And all the while, by his side, sat a black attaché case in which it is believed contained incriminating evidence linking P2, the Mafia, the Vatican, and Banco Ambrosiano. On the evening of Tuesday the 14th of June 1982, Roberto met with two trusted allies, Flavio Carboni and Hans Kunz. Unusually, the meeting was unplanned, and what they discussed was uncertain. But what was said caused him to change his plans. Panicked, Roberto was driven to Innsbruck, and under the ruse that Roberto was an executive for Fiat, they flew straight to Gatwick. Why he fled to London? Nobody knows. But keen to keep a low profile, Hans Kunst booked Roberto into room 881 of Chelsea Cloisters, a drab, shabby student lodging at 87 Sloan Avenue. But as much as he hated it, he knew this was the best for his protection. No one would think to come looking for him here. Becoming increasingly paranoid, Roberto became a self-imposed prisoner. And always by his side was his bodyguard Silviano and the black attaché case. As hard as he strived to rescue his ailing bank, his world was about to implode. On the evening of Thursday the 16th of June 1982, the $1.2 billion deal with Francesco Pazienza fell through. On the morning of Friday the 17th of June 1982, the board of directors at Banco Ambrosiano met to discuss the $1.4 billion hole in the bank's finances. And with the company poised to collapse, they fired Roberto Calvi. Being confined to room 881, feeling depressed, fraught and exhausted, having not slept for days, even though he had taken several strong sedatives, Roberto spent the day pacing back and forth. He read, he ate, he called his wife and children, but he never left his bodyguard's sight. For the first time ever, that evening, he shaved off his distinctive toothbrush-like moustache. At a little before midnight, 
Flavio Carboni, arrived at the Chelsea Cloisters for an impromptu meeting. But being unwilling to meet him in room 881 or in the downstairs lobby, Roberto asked Silvano to meet Flavio instead. And with the two men distracted, the freshly shaven Roberto Calvi snuck out. Where he went, who he saw and what he did are unknown. But an hour later, he was dead. His body was discovered at 7.30am on Friday the 18th of June 1982 as London postal worker Steve Pullen walked along the Thames path under the north side of Blackfriars Bridge. Being a little after low tide, with the side of the riverbed still visible and the bridge's supports almost fully exposed, Roberto was found 15 feet from the wall, his neck stretched, his feet dangling, hanging from a rope, as his drenched corpse swung in the soft breeze as salty water dripped from his sodden black suit. In his pockets was $15,000 in cash. In his suit were stuffed several bricks, which added weight to hasten his death. And around his neck was a deep red strangulation mark, where the rope had ended his life. At the inquest, the verdict was ruled as suicide. But was it? If this was a suicide, why was no note found on his body, at the scene, or at room 881? Why did he kill himself in public when he spent most of his time alone in his room? Why would he buy a rope when he still owned half a bottle of sleeping pills? Having weighted his pockets with four kilos of bricks, why didn't he simply drown himself in the deep, muddy and fast-moving river? And why would an ailing, overweight banker climb over a high river wall onto a shaky aluminium scaffold and precariously fix his rope 15 feet from the wall on the underside of a bridge when he suffered from vertigo? Unwilling to accept the initial findings, when the Calvi family hired a private investigator to re-examine the evidence and replicate his supposed suicide, what they found was perplexing. Having stuffed his suit with bricks, climbed over a high stone wall and shimmied down an aluminium scaffold, even after his body had been partially submerged, why was no paint, rust or brick dust found on his fingers or clothes, as it had in the tests? The River Thames is tidal, with low tide at about 6am and 6pm, and high tide at midnight and midday. So if he had hung himself just after 1am, with the tide being 9 metres high, his body wouldn't have dangled from a long tight rope, as it did when discovered at low tide. Instead, the rope would be slack, his suit would be soaked, and his body would be partially submerged. In fact, if he had hung himself just after high tide, the red ligature marks found around his neck would have been made post-mortem. But having died of asphyxiation and with no seawater found in his lungs, we know that he did not drown. He was strangled. But how? 
Roberto Calvi travelled four miles east from Chelsea Cloisters to Blackfriars Bridge. But how he got there is a mystery. The red ligature marks on his neck prove that he was strangled with a rope. But the hanging may not have been what killed him. With no struggle marks in his body, it is believed that he may have been drugged. And with the steel beams under Blackfriars Bridge being dark and discreet, at high tide, a small boat could easily have moored up, unnoticed, and positioned the body and the noose. Roberto Calvi could have been murdered anytime, anywhere, by anyone, having been shot, stabbed, poisoned, or drowned, and having disposed of the evidence, including his body, in a way which left no trace. But they didn't. He was found hanged with bricks in his pockets under Blackfriars Bridge. So maybe his murder had meaning. Maybe this staged suicide was symbolic. Consider this. As a secret organisation, very little is known about Propaganda Due, also known as P2. But some of their traditions have haunting similarities to Roberto's death. In his suit pockets were shoved four kilos of bricks and stones, key symbols associated with the Freemasons. As a far-right splinter group, with both military and mafia connections, who he had defrauded out of a lot of money, P2 members dress in black ceremonial robes, just like Dominican monks. And amongst their inner circle, they refer to themselves as Fraternieri, which translates as the Black Friars. Before Roberto's body was identified, his bodyguard, Silvano Vaccari, fled London in a private jet. He was carrying a black attaché case, identical to the one Roberto always kept about his person. But his case was never found. Three months later, Silvano was found dead, with 15 stab wounds to his face and two bricks found in his pockets. In 1983, Banco Ambrosiano collapsed with debts of over $1.3 billion. As its major shareholder, the Vatican paid $224 million to the bank's creditors as recognition of its moral involvement. But with not enough evidence, the Vatican was granted immunity from prosecution, and Archbishop Paul Marcinkus later retired to Sun City in Arizona, having never been tried, charged or convicted. With a second inquiry into Roberto's death leading to an open verdict, his murder remains unsolved. And still, it is uncertain if the murder was committed separately or jointly by the Mafia, P2 or the Vatican. Or is it simply a coincidence that the man dubbed God's banker would choose to end his life 800 miles from home under Blackfriars Bridge? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And for all murky mucky milers, there's more wibbly bum plop in Extra Mile after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson. 
author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts. Have you ever been reading through a sack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Greta Carlson and Annabelle Peacock. I thank you. With extra thank yous to John and Bev Woodley and friends, who came on my Murder Mile walk recently and treated me to some lovely cakes. Yummy. Thank you also to the Hughes family, who came on their second walk, and were treated on this walk to a little sausage from a Soho local, which may, I think, be a belated congratulations for the marriage of Mr. and Mrs. King of the Refunds. Huzzah! And also a thank you to Emma Lambert for the very generous donation to the Murder Mile Cake Fund. I thank you. Don't forget, you've got one more week to enjoy the whopping 20% off all Murder Mile merchandise via the merch shop. To get 20% off all ebooks, mugs, and badges, simply type Call Me Reg 20. That's Call Me Reg with no spaces and the number 20 where it says voucher code in the checkout. And as always, if you want to see what the murder locations look like, every Thursday I upload a blog for each episode with a map location videos, photos, etc. There's a link in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. 
all the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Oh, dear Lord. Right. Okie dokie. Hey, folks. How you diddling? You diddling good? Oh, reaching behind me. Oh, that was an early start. I was trying to trying to get up and out before to start recording because I'm right next to a boat club. And it's all very well and fine and dandy. There's a boat club and then there's a, a, a boat rental place. I'm still at the same place where I was last time, but the boat rental place lets out their boats oh with oh for people who can't steer properly like families going yeah oh, look he's got a boat and they, they you know they stop up and they have a look inside your boat and it's really annoying uh, but they start at nine o'clock but the rowing boats are outside at the moment they're like those long ones that you see where the, the, the five pointless people in a row trying to row fast and it's oh it's really pointless they start at about 7 a.m so i i decided to get up early to try and beat them to it, beat, beat them, beat the airplanes that are flying over, beat the ducks. Oh, but oh god, that was a difficult one to record. Even though I prepped in advance quite well, I kind of prepped and gone. I put I put down in the script for this. I've put in the p- pronunciation of all the Italian names because otherwise I'd be there. I hate it when you listen to a podcast and someone hasn't read. You know, they haven't bothered to learn the name in advance. I think it's simple to sit there. So I, I use a pronunciation bit of software and I check it a couple of times and then I write it next to it. Like so, uh, uh, Licio Jelly. It's not pronounced. It's not spelt as you would think it would be spelt. It looks like it's Licio or something like that. But I had to check it. And it was like, oh, it's Licio Jelly, not Gelly. And it's yeah. So I've done all of those in there. So, but even with that, this was still a bugger to record anyway that was a full start wasn't it um welcome to extra mile everyone if you're not used to extra mile this is extra mile this is the unedited unscripted bit waffle this is uh uh yeah uh uh, uh, (laughs) 
I can't remember your name. Sorry, you came on my walk recently and you said, uh, are you drunk when you're doing Extra Mile? No, I'm not drunk. This is just, it's just tiredness. I never drink when I'm doing Extra extra Mile or Murder Mile at all. I don't think you should. I think you should stay sharp. I struggle enough with the words as it is. So, yeah. But no, this is different. So the first part is all scripted. This bit is not scripted. So I can kind of go off target and, and stuff. Right, I'm going to make a cup of tea. I'm going to open some windows, get some air in. Uh... Oh, the side door as well. Oh, a bit of fresh air. That's nice. Oh, and then you'll hear. I had to bang on the side of the boat earlier on because there were some ducks. Because there's uh, algae along the side of the boat. Whoa. The ducks were like, ooh, that's nice. We, uh, we'll uh, eat the algae off the side of my boat, and which is fine. Do you know they can do that? But the problem is when you're trying to record, all you can hear is... Can you imagine, imagine like 10 ducks going along the side of your boat going... It echoes everywhere. So I, I had to give them a bang on the boat and then they, they ran away. They were like, ooh, what's that? They've got enough to eat. They can bugger off. So, making a cup of tea. I have a choice today. I have Congress tarts. Or, who's that out there? What's that out there? Congress tarts or a Bakewell tart. I got one of each. Bakewell tart are the nice ones. Got them from Morrison's. They're nice and cheap, but the great thing is about Morrison's Bakewell tarts is they're thick. They're really thick. They are about easily about an inch and a half. Easily, which is very nice. I'm going. Do you know what? I'm going to have both. Sod it. I'm going to have both. They're about an inch and a half wide. The um, icing on the top is good. There's a good level of frenzy pan in there as well, or, or whichever which one of the pans is in there, in the bottom. Good bit of jam. There's a uh, glacé cherry on top, which is good, and the uh, the pastry is very good. And it's uh, for four of them, it's probably about a pound, which is very good. But then this week I decided they hadn't. Oh my breath! This morning uh, they got other ones, and I, I was like, oh, Congress tarts. What's that? So I'll give them a go. So these are. Um, Short crust pastry on them. They're, they're probably only about half an inch deep. Short crust pastry. And then it's not a franzi pan and it's not a marzipan. It's some other kind of, it could be a franzi pan on top, but it's a little bit hard. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I bit into it and in the middle is meant to be jam. But they've been a bit stingy with the jam. And when you open it up, it's basically, there's a, uh, it looks like a gap. It looks like you've got basically a cake cave. And then someone has smeared the outside of the cake cave or the inside of the walls with a very, 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 very thin hint of jam. Ducks in the fight. What a noise. Glad they did that now and not earlier on. They, they went past earlier on, they were being really noisy. Yeah, so the the cake cave, uh, the walls have been lined with a very, very thin coat of jam, but that's it. So basically you go, oh, this looks nice, and you eat it, and it's just basically cave air. So just waiting for the, uh, oh, hang on, I'm put my tea bag in. I'm put my tea bag in, I'm done my sugar, I'm done all the essentials. Oh, dear, sorry, I'm tired. It's been a long week. Long week, lots of early starts. I'll explain that in a second. There we go, pop that there. Yeah. You can join in if you like. You can make a cup of tea while I'm making a cup of tea. That'll be fun. 
So, ah, uh, where are we? Okay, yeah, uh, uh, so yeah, I've got my two cakes in front of me. I might have both, I think. Yeah, I think I might treat myself. So, um, I'm going to announce it now. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Yes, winter is coming. You may not think that. You may think, oh, we're still in August. You know, winter's not coming. Oh, by the time you get this, this will be... When does this go out? This is like the 21st of... 21st of August, I think. Because this is episode 70. You would have just listened to uh meander mile two the covent garden one i've already recorded as you know the next two and this is the one after that so the, by the time you listen to meander mile two i'm i'm recording this but i'm not going to edit it just yet i'm, I'm dog sitting for my brother in 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 what is technically oh, but yeah by the time you listen to this i think i'll be dog sitting so i'm recording this and writing, writing and recording here, because I can't write and record anywhere else. I really, I just can't focus. But I think I'll be able to record it is. So uh, I'm going to hopefully record and write, write and record these episodes 70 and 71 and edit them there. Because I can't write it anywhere else. I've tried before and I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, winter is coming. Winter is coming. I've said that winter is coming. This is not a Brexit thing. This is winter literally is coming. So uh, even though this is, we're in August now, I'm prepping for winter already, which is the boat thing you have to do. If you're a good boater, you're already prepping for winter and you're already thinking way ahead. If you're a new boater and you're like, oh, one bag of coal will see me through the whole winter, you're an idiot. So, uh, yeah, I'm at my most northerly point at the moment. Uh, normally I go a bit further, but it's, uh, I had to hang the boat back to do some repairs and things like that. Uh, but now I'm at the point where I turn and then I come back the other way and start heading into town. There goes those pathetic boats again. Oh, get a, get a hobby. Get a hobby, you losers. Uh, like podcasting. Yeah, do, do a podcast about rowing a boat. That'd be dull, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, so you, most northerly point I'm about to turn around uh, and head south head back to the city I kind of head through the city uh, in the winter months and I head, then I end up uh, west at the start of uh, the st- kind of end point of wind, winter so but what I'm doing now is I'm stocking up on logs at the moment which is great it's a perfect time of year to do it when everyone else is sweating away and uh, going oh let's get some barbecue stuff Muriel what I do is I go right winter so I, I go into Poundland, and in Poundland, not too far from here, uh, they're selling away all their, their fire logs for like a pound, or as you'd expect in Poundland. But everywhere else, like if you go into Sainsbury's and stuff like that, it's like £2.50 for a, a, uh, a fire log. So I've got all those. I, I just stock up my bag. I go, right, 10 more fire logs, and they weigh a ton, but I come back with them. And then I'm going to pick up some more later on. And then sort of boxes of firelighters should be £3, down to 69p. Bargain. There goes my tea. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm stocking up for winter. So whenever, when, because everyone else waits until it's cold and they go, oh, it's starting to get cold. And that's when they start buying the coal, which is ridiculous. I do my turn. Uh, I'm not going to say where I get to, but I get to a special place on the water where I know I'm going to be. And the coal man, the coal boat comes out. And then what I do, uh, and that's normally around October time. And then uh, I message the coal man and go, oh, can I have uh, a third of a ton of coal, please? And that's normally around the start of October, which I'll do the same this year as well. Start of October, quarter of a ton of coal, about 15 bags of logs, loads of kindling, because he'll have loads, because no one will be buying it by that point. Everyone will be like, oh, it's not cold enough to do it yet. But I will be, I'll be stocked up. Uh, So that's what I'm prepping for, which will be good. 
So I'm going to start stocking up on coal and logs. Uh, might have to start prepping for tinned goods because of Brexit. It's going, it's going to go well, isn't it? It's going to go very well. Yes. Uh, I think I might buy a riot shield as well, just in case for when all the riots kick off. Uh, and maybe, maybe I should start stockpiling cakes for when there's no food left on the shelves. Oh, God help us all. Really, God help us all. If I do stockpile cakes, uh, this boat will probably tip over because of the weight of all the cakes. But then I'd have to eat all the cakes, which would be great. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm recording this. This is Saturday the 3rd of August. 2019 we're way ahead a couple of, as i mentioned a couple of uh a bit ahead of myself uh i'm in quite, kind of a nice place ish i quite like it here it's it's a bit peaceful it's near a train station there's some uh there's some moo cows moo cows in the uh uh field just opposite and i, I know some of the boaters as well they're all very pleasant very nice which is good there's a man opposite there's loads of on one side it's it's kind of a, a nice path and on the other side is some relatively posh houses not super posh but relatively posh for the area uh, and everyone has kind of a um a, a kind of a riverside view but for some reason they hate the boaters it's like they they, they want a riverside view but they hate the boaters and the, the boaters were here before well, the boats were here before their houses were but they're like oh, no, no, we, we paid money to be here so you need to bugger off uh but most of, most of the people in the house are very nice. But there's one guy who's a real... I'm going to use the word, he's a real prick. He really is. And uh, I, I know you'll hate him as well. Like, he comes out every day and he sees all the ducks on the water. And you live on the river and you go, oh, great, ducks on the water. That's lovely. And all the, all the birds. But because he's got a little plastic, shitty little boat there that he never uses, it never moves, it doesn't go anywhere. He washes it, but he doesn't take it anywhere. And because we're on a... Uh, a river which there's locks on either side multiple locks he doesn't take it through the locks so he doesn't go anywhere but because he doesn't like birds being near his boats in case they, in case they shit on it he pulls out a little remote control boat and he goes and he fires it down the waterway and chases all the ducks away terrorizing the ducks and you know he's he's in his 50s or 60s and he's he acts like a four-year-old uh so uh, i've notified the rspb many times about him uh but he he is a real he's, he's a real prick he really is uh and what i've noticed this time is he's he start doing it's you can tell it's deliberate on the outside of his uh garden facing the water not facing his house he's put some solar powered lights but they're really bright solar powered lights that don't come on and off when they see someone go past they're on all the time and it's like disco lights and he keeps them on 24 hours a day facing the water so luckily, luckily, I have very, very thick curtains and a, uh, 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 an eye shield that I wear, so I don't, so I don't see the lights. But without them, oh dear, it's blinding. It really is. So yeah, he's a bit of a prick. He really is. Uh, but anyway, maybe one day he'll he'll get murdered, and uh, I could write his story. Once upon a time, there was there was a sixty-year-old prick, and then I could spend I could spend. <laughs> 10, 10 to 15 minutes <coughs> writing about what toss pot he is and then I go and then someone murdered him and that was great God, there really are some uh, <coughs> arseholes around uh, so uh, hope you enjoyed that episode that was really good uh, uh, <coughs> oh dear cough, cough alert uh, <coughs> uh, time for a cup of tea oh, that's better um I was up uh, early yesterday. I've been up quite early quite a lot, but I'd, I'd written this episode 
<coughs> I'd already visited the location. I'd already been down to Blackfriars. I'd check, I on on all the press reports. They they just say man hung under Blackfriars Bridge, but I like to find exactly where it is. It's all very well saying under Blackfriars Bridge, but there's a north side, there's a south side, there is, is the Blackfriars Bridge itself, but there's also Blackfriars uh, uh, a railway bridge, and there's the old uh, stanchions from the old bridge as well. So there's technically three bridges side by side. So I think it's important to know which one it is and where his body was found and roughly kind of nail it down quite properly. So I'd already visited the location. I'd already recorded some new sounds using my stereo recorder. Ooh, very exciting. Uh, but when I was rewriting uh, this episode, I was really thinking carefully about the um, the point made about the um, uh, about the tide, about high tide and low tide. And although doing my research, I'd already checked uh, what the high tide and the low tide is under Blackfriars Bridge around that point. Um, I wanted to physically see it for myself because it's it's all very well saying you know uh, at low tide the water can go down to uh, as low as one meter but high tide it can go up to nine meters depending on the season and even though this is technically end of july and the murder happened kind of mid-june the water levels are still about the same uh, still about the same but what i wanted to do was physically see it myself so uh even though i'm miles away in kind of the border of essex and middlesex at the moment i I woke up really ridiculously early. I made it into town and got to underneath Blackfriars Bridge just before half past seven in the morning, which was when uh, the body of Roberto Calvi was found. And I got to that point just so I could see what the level of the water was like. And if you go onto the blog, there's a blog that goes with all these episodes. And I I put in as many, um, I put in all the videos on there that you can i don't put all the photos on there because it's my website i'm not allowed to put on photos which aren't on my own so a lot of the a lot of the photos that i haven't taken myself uh are on my patreon account and they're on there because it's private and no one you know i won't be sued for copyright infringement but on my website i would and it will cost me a lot of money but if you go onto my website uh i put two videos on there the first is the video that i went there and i i went like this is where the location is and this is you can see everything here and this is the thames and blah blah blah, blah. but <clears throat> the second video is me showing you uh the high tide and the the low tide level and if you look at it i got there at low tide it was an hour and a half after low tide so it wasn't quite low tide it was going from low started to go to high and you can see how low the water level is and when roberto would have been hung from the uh bridge the middle support you would see that um by the length of the rope his body would be hanging across the water but it would be shielded by any boats going past or any cars but not by pedestrians coming underneath the bridge uh but it but it's a very dark place it'd be hard to see anything at all uh and actually he probably would have been under the under the the river wall as well so it'd be hard to see him as well but when you look at the water level if you look at this i, I point to it on the video if you look at the stanchions the the, the kind of uh, stone stanchions which hold the steel bridge when you look on there you can see the green algae where the green algae kind of rises up during high tide and it's really high up so if he would have been on his rope uh, from the uh i've i've put in uh unfortunately it's only on uh patreon uh because it's a it's an alame picture and they will charge me a freaking ton of money so i've used it uh oh no actually have i i may not have used it on patreon because because of fear of being being uh having alame uh 
rip all the money out of my pockets, which they would do. Uh, but if, if you look at the, the uh, aluminium scaffold that was there, he has to climb over the wall. They has to climb down onto the scaffold, which means he's, he's under the wall. So that would mean uh, if you look at the level of the water, if they would have hung him, he would have been submerged. And then on the picture as well, oh, this could only be on Patreon as well. I may, I'll, I'll try and sneak it on too uh my instagram account or if you listen or uh on my oh i can't concentrate today uh on uh the facebook uh the murder mile facebook discussion group i'll throw some of them on there later on patreon listeners get them early uh everyone else will get them late they pay the money they pay the bills uh but uh you'll see that um when roberto was pulled out of the water his suit was incredibly crumpled. It was wet. It was really soaked. You could see in his pockets where they'd put bricks uh, to weigh him down. So, uh, yeah, the tides are really important on that one. So uh, worth looking at those pictures. Worth looking at those videos as well. I've put some of the pictures on on, uh, on my blog, but not all of them. Only the ones that I can legally get away with. I think I've put I've put some pictures on of all the suspects who were in there. They were good. It was wick- uh, I used Wikipedia for that. The great thing is if Wikipedia use a picture, you can use it because it's Wiki Commons, uh, which means if Wikipedia uses it, you can use it, which is fine. Uh, as long as you link back to Wikipedia, which I've done, but you can't just steal any photo off Google. Uh, otherwise, you get screwed like I did. Whew, 300 quid for four photos. They weren't even good photos either, so you've got to be really careful. If you've got a blog and you've used other pe- people's pictures, be bloody careful. Uh, so, that was that story. I've tried, I've covered as much as I can in that case in a short period of time. It's a very complicated case. I've tried, I've tried to simplify as much as possible because if i was to sit down and tell you everything you would be absolutely as baffled as i was at the start so so some things I've, I've skimmed over some things i've missed out some people i've missed out this is all deliberate don't get in touch with me and say oh what about this person i don't care really not bothered this is about simplifying the story and trying to get it across as simply as possible uh but what i have deliberately missed out was the trials afterwards there's several trials afterwards um i didn't add them in because it just you know as soon as we found out he was dead and the 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 reasons why uh, i felt it was best to wrap up the episode rather than us going into and this happened at the trial because the trials are really really complicated but i'm gonna so this is what extra extra mile is for so uh i've nicked these off wikipedia i know i don't use normally use wikipedia but it was a nice summation uh so uh you can go on wikipedia have a look at these yourself but i will read it to you if you like so uh this was the pros- prosecution of uh, Gi- giuseppe pipo carlo uh who was the one of the mafia bosses and licio jelly who was the grandmaster of p2 people going past with their doggies and a boat going past now there we go uh so in july 1991 mafia pentito uh, another word for boss uh francesco Francesco Marino Manuel. See, this is why I always prep things in advance. Manuel, Manuel, maybe it's Geordie. Uh, they've got a really noisy engine. Christ, that that is not good. That is not good. It's a big old boat, and he's chugging away, but but his engine is dying. To uh, yeah, buy a smaller boat, you idiot. Um, 
Mafia Pentito, Francesco Marino Manuaye, let's call him Manuaye, uh, claimed that Calvi had been killed because he had lost Mafia funds when Banco Ambrosio collapsed. Now, we've mentioned this before, that it was meant to be around $50 million uh, worth of money that was that whether Calvi knew this or not was being laundered through Banco Ambrosiano. Obviously, as we mentioned before, he's quite a secretive man. He did a lot of things that the, the rest of the bank didn't know about. Uh, so whether this is true or not, we don't know. We also know that uh, Licio Gelli uh, had mafia connections himself. There were mafia involved in P2. So where this laundering of money came from, we don't know. We also, there was a connection between... Um, um, oh, what was his name? The, 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 guy, the guy from... Uh, uh, Franklin National Bank, uh, Sindona. Michele Sindona, uh, there was a connection between Michele Sindona and P2 and uh, uh, Banco Ambrosia. He was he was paid a certain amount of money from Roberto Calvi. So, uh, according to Manuaye, I'm going to keep that name. According to Francesco Manuaye, uh, the killer was Francesco Di Carlo, a mafioso living in London at the time, on the orders of Giuseppe Carlo. Now, he is Giuseppe Pippo Carlo, the uh, mafia boss. He's not the Don, but he's a mafia boss. And Licio Gelli, so the grandmaster of P2. Di Carlo became an informer in June 1996 and denied that he was the killer, uh, but he admitted that Carlo had approached him to commit the murder. Uh, obviously, because this is Wikipedia, there's lots of uh, little notes on there saying needs uh, needs reference, needs source. So uh, many of these can't be established. Uh, according to Di Carlo, the killers were Vicari, so that uh, Vicari was his uh was uh roberto calvi's bodyguard and the guy who drove him from italy to london and vincenzo casilio he doesn't appear in that story because i took him out who belonged to the camorra of naples that's the kind of mafia family in naples uh both of them were later murdered in 1997 italian prosecutors in rome implicated uh carlo uh, giuseppe people carlo people uh in calvi's murder along with flavio carboni the Sardinian businessman who we mentioned earlier on, he was one of the three guys who helped uh, uh, Roberto Calvo escape from Italy. Um, I believe that he he was uh, he was introduced by the Italian financier who was meant to um, be helping uh, Calvi with the one point two billion dollar deal that was meant to help him. He was. Uh, connected to those two there was a lot of connections there there's a little documentary that i might try and put put out for you to watch uh, it's an old cbs documentary from the 80s and they do a nice connection where they lay it down of who is connected to who it's it, it's kind of sometimes it's needed so um giuseppe cal uh italian prosecutors in rome implicated giuseppe people calvo uh in Calvi's murder, along with Flavio Carboni, a Sardinian businessman with wide-ranging interests, inverted commas, um, Di Carlo and Ernesto Di Talevi. Di... Di... Bloody names. Bloody names. A member of ba, uh, of Banda... See, this is why I haven't included it in it. My story was complicated enough without all of this. Uh, we're alleged to be involved in the killing. Citation needed, obviously. Uh, in in July 2003, Italian prosecu prosecutors uh, concluded that the mafia acted in its own interest to ensure that Calvi could not blackmail them. 
So is this a story about blackmail? Is it a story about lost money? Is this a story about the mafia doing the killing on behalf of P2 or on behalf of the Vatican? Or are they doing it for themselves? No one really knows. Uh, Licio Gelli was the Grand Master of the P2 Lodge. He received a notification on the 19th of July 2005 informing him that he was officially under... This, see, this is... This is 23 years later. Uh, on the 19th of July 2005, informing him that he was officially under investigation on charges of ordering Calvi's murder. Along with uh, Giuseppe Bibo Galvo, uh, Flavio Carboni, and Carboni's Austrian girlfriend, Manuela Kleinzig. Now, I've removed her from the story, but when um, uh, Silvano Vittor was driving Roberto Calvo in the car from the uh italian yugoslavian border to meant to be to lun uh whatever direction they were going but uh, zurich sorry um they had in the car so uh uh, Sil- uh flavio uh, carboni's austrian girlfriend was in the back with her and her friend as well and they were pretending to be uh, roberto calvi's girlfriend and uh silvano's girlfriend uh, i removed her from the story because it kind of doesn't really make really much sense at this point to add add her in um th- which is why which is why you can understand why i've simplified the story because it is really complicated uh, the other four suspects uh, have been indicted on charges of murder in April. According to the indictment, the five ordered the murder to prevent Calvi from using blackmail power against his political and institutional sponsors uh, from the world of the masonry, uh, obviously Freemasonry, uh, belonging to the P2 Lodge or the Institute for Religious Works, the Vatican Bank, with whom he had managed investments and financi- and financing uh, with conspicuous sums of money, some of it coming from Cosa Nostra, which is another word for, well, basically the, the proper word for the mafia, and public agencies, public agencies, inverted commas. Uh, so that can mean uh, the government. Uh, Licio Gelli was accused of provoking uh, Calvi's death to punish him for embezzling money from Banco Ambrosiano that was owned that was owed to him and the mafia. The mafia allegedly wanted to prevent Calvi from... <coughs> revealing that Banco Ambrosiano was used for money laundering, which we have mentioned before. There is meant to be about 50, the equivalent of $50 million laundered through the bank. Uh, well, not through the bank itself, but through all the various uh, overseas institutions that, that uh, had been set up. Licio Gelli denied involvement, but acknowledged that the financier was murdered. In his statement before the court, he said that the killing was commissioned in Poland. Uh, it is thought to be a reference... This is thought to be a reference to uh, Calvi's alleged involvement in financing the Solidarity Trade Union movement at the, cre- at the request of Pope John Paul II, allegedly on behalf of the Vatican. However, Licio Gelli's was not in the final indictment at the trial, which was started in October 2005. See, you can see why I've kind of kept all of this out. It gets really, really... Uh, should I do this next one? So this next one. Let me try and whiz you through this next one. Uh, in 2005, Italian magistrates investigating Calvi's death took their inquiries to London in order co- to question witnesses. Um, if you look on the documentary, uh, there's a documentary I've included. They've included parts of, even though it's a CBS documentary, originally it was a British documentary. It's got Jeremy Paxman in it. Yeah. 
obvious. He's in there being his usual annoying self, but this has been the days when he was an investigative journalist, and he goes and meets uh, Silvano Vittor, and it's it's quite an interesting documentary. Um, so, uh, in 2005, Italian magistrates investigating Calvi's death took the inquiries to London in, in order to question witnesses. Uh, they had been cooperating with Chief Superintendent Trevor Smith, who built the case partially on evidence provided by Jeffrey Katz, Jeffrey Katz was the investiga- investigator, private investigator hired by the Roberto Calvi's family to uh, reinvestigate all the evidence that they felt was uh, inconsistent. Uh, Chief Superintendent Trevor Smith had been able to make the first arrest of a UK witness uh, who had allegedly committed perjury during the Calvi inquest. Citation needed. On the 5th of October 2005, the trial began in Rome of the five individuals charged with Calvi's murder. The defendants were uh, Giuseppe Pippo Calvi, Flavio Carboni, uh, Kleinzig, who was uh, Carboni's girlfriend, Ernesto Diotalavivi, I haven't mentioned him before because that com- convolutes the water, and Calvi's former driver and bodyguard, Silvano Vittor. Obviously, by that point, Silvano Vittor would have been dead. Yes, he would have been dead by that point. So that would have been posthumously. Uh, the trial took place in a specifically fortified courtroom in Rome's in, uh, in Rome prison. All five were cleared of murdering Calvi on the 6th of June 2004. That's almost a year later. It's, yeah, it's a year later. Judge Mario Lucio D'Andrio uh, threw out the charges, citing insufficient evidence. Let's not forget that uh, quite a few of the people who were involved in P2 were judges. Not saying that there was something going on here, but the judge threw out the charges, citing insufficient evidence uh, after hearing 20 months of evidence. The court ruled that Calvi's death was murder and not suicide. The defence suggested that there were plenty of people with a motive for Calvi's murder, obviously, including Vatican officials and mafia figures, who wanted to ensure his silence. Legal experts following the trial said that the prosecutors found it hard to present a convincing case due to the 25 years that had elapsed since Calvi's death. No shit. Uh, Additionally, key witnesses were unwilling to testify untraceable or were dead. No shit. The prosecution called for uh, Manuela Kleinzig, who was uh, Flavio uh, Carboni's girlfriend, to be cleared, stating that there was insufficient evidence against her, but they sought life sentences for the four men. Uh, Katz claimed that it was likely that senior figures in the Italian establishment escaped prosecution. The problem is, he says, uh, that the people who were probably ordered to clear the to who actually ordered the death of Calvi are not in the dock today. Uh, but to get those people might be very difficult indeed. Uh, Jeffrey Katz said, it, uh, said that it was probably true that the mafia carried out the killing, but that the gangsters suspected of the crime were either dead or missing. Well, that kind of makes a lot of sense. That's kind of what they do. Do you know if you're going to do a pro- high, you're paid to do a high profile murder and then they, they bump you off afterwards. So you don't talk uh, the verdict in the trial was not the end of the matter since the prosecutor's office in Rome had opened a second investigation by June 2007 implicating uh, Licio Jelly and others and others inverted commas uh, in May 2009 the prosecution dropped the case against Licio Jelly according to the magistrate there was insufficient evidence again to argue that Licio Jelly had played a role in the planning and execution of the crime on the 7th of May 2010 a court of appeals confirmed the acquittal of uh, Giuseppe Pippo Gallo 
Flavio Carboni and the other guy, Ernest Thingamajig. Um, so they were all acquitted. Uh, prosecutor uh, commented that Calvi had been murdered, had been murdered for the second time. So what they're saying there is that uh, he had been strangled first and then he had been hung. Uh, on the 18th of November 2011, the, uh, a court uh, confirmed the acquittal. Uh, Giuseppe Bibocalo, as of now, is still currently serving life in prison for unrelated mafia charges. So it's still a little bit unsure and unsketchy, really, what's going on there. It's a real... Uh, bit of a cluster flick i was polite then i said cluster flick not cluster beep so that's that hope you enjoyed that that was a cause that was a really that was a bugger to write that was bugger to write bugger to research because not everything's consistent not everything is fact not everything there's a lot of theories out there and there's a lot of names and there's a lot of you know you've got the vatican you've got the mafia you've got p2 you've got the bank you've got you know, you've got multiple banks in there. You've got multiple sources. It's a real, oh. So I tried to get, hopefully I got that down to about 30, 40 minutes that episode and then and then extra mile afterwards. But hopefully that all made sense for you. Right. I'm going to eat a cake. I'm going to finish my tea. I'm going to go to uh, Costa Coffee, abuse their internet, abuse their uh, electricity and uh, start working on episode 71. Which is interesting. I, I started working on episode 71 yesterday. I'd already done research for it. But then I was like, where's the location? And I'd been given a name of, of where the location was. Can't find it. Doesn't exist. Doesn't appear on a map. Doesn't appear on a current map. Doesn't appear on an old map. Appears briefly on a census. And I know roughly where it is. But I'm at this point now where I'm like, it's in a triangle between three roads. And I know it's there. I just can't find it. I don't think the building exists anymore, and I can't. And it doesn't appear to have been renamed. So it's uh, so that's my mission today: is go and find out where this uh, bloody road is, so I can find the building. Otherwise, we'll be lost. I suspect. I suspect it's in the same area as the uh, uh, the brutal baker uh, Alexander Moyer. It's the back of uh, uh, Covent Garden. So uh, I suspect that it was probably one of these streets that was demolished uh, to make way for the Novello Theatre, I believe, or was it the Apollo? I'm not too sure. Anyway, I'm tired now. So I think my throat's going. So uh, I will see you all soon. Hope all is well. Um, Make use of the 20% off the Murder Mile shop. Come on a Murder Mile walk. Um, Booking up until Christmas at the moment. So, uh, yeah, uh, come on the walk, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, Have fun. Have a good week. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.